Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 10th, 2018, the Infinity War edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is back after a brief hiatus elsewhere. Hi, John Dickerson. Where are you? You're in New York. Hi, I'm in New York City. I'm in the CBS radio offices. Oh, you said that with a good, sonorous CBS radio kind of voice. And Emily the Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's show, the government shutdown, week 47. How long will it continue? Is there any anything that could break the, the stalemate that we have on the government shutdown and the wall? Then the latest developments in the Mueller investigation. What do they portend for the overall investigation? Is there now evidence of collusion? Plus, why is everybody, including us, so obsessed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? We will talk about her and the interest in her and then her ideas, which are really fascinating. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we get any further, got an exciting announcement. John and Emily, you didn't even know this was coming. We have a live show coming up here in Washington, D.C., my hometown at the Lincoln Theater on Wednesday, March 27th. Wednesday, March 27th. And this is not just a regular show because we're going to have a special Emily Bazelon book show. Emily's new book, Charged. Yes. Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration, which is great. I know. I've read it. It's going to be available for attendees two weeks before the release date. Emily's going to do a book signing afterwards. You can go and hang out with Emily after the show. So go to slate.com slash live for information and tickets. We will do a regular GabFest, but we will also talk, of course, about Emily's fantastic book and the policy issues that it raises. And and uh, is there a book? Can people get a book with their ticket, Emily? I don't yes, even know. Yes, people can get a book with their ticket, even though the book will not be on sale for everyone else until April Whoa. The yes. Whoa. Mind blown. <laughs> and I am so really Wednesday... hoping, yes, that, that our GabFest friends are going to help me feel happy about this Book launch, which is otherwise terrifying event. Book books are so hard, guys. So if um, God, they really you want... are, <laughs> yeah, and you're freaking out. me out with the whole book launch thing. No, because... so come on out, come on out, support Emily, support yes. Emily on so Wednesday, March twenty seventh so in DC. It would be so nice and affirming. But John, why is that like, terrifying for you? You're like at the oh. you're at a nice like beginning ish stage of your own book. I don't know. The uh, I just flash forward to the. I don't know. Yes, I don't know. it's true. It's just, One can drum up anxiety from beginning to end. Yes, exactly. It's just this huge floating ball of anxiety from where <laughs> you cannot untether yourself. She'll, she'll, um, you're sending the wrong message. Emily, it's going to be amazing. Emily's book No, it's going to be great for her. She's passed Slate. the post. Slate.com slash live. Get tickets for Wednesday, March 27th. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's going to be great. The government shutdown will shortly be the longest in history, and it is a national embarrassment 
The president's much ballyhooed speech on Tuesday night turned into a big pile of not very much, which is fortunate for Democrats because their response was quite feeble, in my opinion. The administration is attempting to show there's a national emergency on the border. In fact, as we tape, the president seems to have gone to the border to hype this idea that there's a national emergency. There is, however, no evidence of that. There's not a rise in crossings, not a rise in detention of of terrorist suspects or people on watch lists. The numbers of people who are uh, crossing and potentially a threat to national security are mind-bogglingly small, and the administration still is deceptive about that. So yet the president persists with his insistence on getting wall funding in the budget, and compromise seems distant. The House, the democratically controlled House, is starting to pass funding bills for individual departments. But Senate Republicans do not seem yet prepared to act and also pass those bills or at least even vote on those bills. So there's got to be some kind of break in this. The president may invoke emergency powers and say he's going to use funding that's intended for the Department of Defense to build the wall, uh, a move that I think many people, including I'm sure our own Emily Bazelon, think is illegal. Senate Republicans may break with him and, and vote on bills that he doesn't want to sign. The president may find some other way to declare victory. Uh, yesterday, on, on Wednesday, he stormed out of a meeting with Democrats when Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, said she would not fund the wall under any circumstances. So, John, what what might break the stalemate? Well, I don't know. But let me just go back to your original riff, which, because I think there's a, there's so many things to be focused on here. But first of all, let's go back to the founding of the country. The biggest, one of the biggest things the founders worried about was that a president would declare a fake emergency for the purposes of seizing more power for the office than they were granted. So we're basically at starting point um, of one of the fundamental fears of the use of the presidency. Secondly, you quite rightly pointed out that the evidence marshaled um, to, to make the case that this is an emergency was thin or non-existent or completely untrue. Um, and that obviously, you know, what was striking is the president who has broken so many norms of the office and not just broken them, but gone exactly in the opposite direction and also considered those norms to be just kind of fake and phony, then was trying to rely on one of the strongest symbols of the presidency, of the old presidency, the kind that existed before the president, which was an Oval Office address. But this is, you know, like taking some herb that you uh, would use in cooking and, you know, throwing it on the floor for two years and then suddenly hoping that the herb will season the dish that you're making. It just, it, it's not I've effective. That. I've tried that. And, and finally, I would say that re- we should remember that the, that the argument the president is saying is that this is an emergency. Not that this is an issue that needs to be addressed, but that there is something acute and immediate that is happening. And secondly, not just that it is acute and immediate, but that it requires the kind of emergency that the emergency measures that are already being taken. And what are those emergency measures that are being taken? Well, they're not actually to to build a wall or address the actual underlying problem. The emergency measures are the ones that are happening by neglect, which is to say people are not getting paychecks or they're about to not get paychecks. Um, And it's disrupting the lives of the 800,000 or so uh, federal workers. So the emergency measures are already being taken. They're just uh, causing emergencies for people unrelated to the underlying case. Um, and that's what's so out of whack here. Well, also, John, just to, to jump on that a little bit more, to say there is an emergency at the border and we have to grapple with it. And then the solution is is a years-long project, incredibly slow, tedious project to build a barrier, which does not 
that is not an addressing and an emergency. That's all. That's like addressing some long-term need, potentially. David Frum put it this way. He said, it's like if your house is on fire and somebody rushing in to say, okay, now let's build a new fire station, right? So it's not... <laughs> there are emergencies. Heroin right. is coming. It's just not coming over the southern border right. in the way the president suggests. So right. there are things that are happening on the immigration front that are acute, and there are people overwhelming the system, and money could be applied towards over towards making the system better. But that's not money that goes into a wall. Well, um, in light of all of that, because I think that is an excellent unpacking of the reality of where we are, why are Republican senators and most Republicans in the House sticking so closely to Trump? There is something that feels um, faith-based to me about their response. I and because look, the the wall is re- super popular with Trump supporters. I understand that's the core base of the Republican Party, but it is not popular with independents and other perhaps gettable voters. And when you pair it with shutting down the government, it is really not popular. So I just don't – I get the idea that they're all scared that if they come forward one by one, Trump will pick them off and they will lose their elections plus be humiliated. But if they banded together, which is what you have to do to stop a bully, it just seems to me like they could expose a lie here. And I guess the answer to my own question is that would be detrimental to their own party. But I I really wonder about the politics for them. I mean, he's a bully in their gang, though. Like, that's the problem. He's not a bully who's bullying them. He's a bully. He's, he, they're part of the, the gang of bullies. And so they recognize that he's a he's a bully. And, and actually, it's no fun to be part of this gang. But they don't have a they're not they're not victims in the way the rest of us are victims. Yeah, but the I way. the gang being part of the gang could prove in the end to be their undoing. No, like the the leader of the gang is leading them in a very unpopular right. Direction. But this is like and asking also, a mob. This is like why don't mobsters turn on their mob bosses when they even though they know it's probably going to end badly on for them because it's they're they're tied in. They've 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 made their bed. They've they've gotten they've gotten. I mean, to mix like a hundred metaphors, they've gotten in bed with this person, and so so it's much harder to get out of that bed than it is if you've never gotten in bed with them to begin with. I think also I think that's all that's all true but I think also based on the res- response and some of what I've heard from the president's supporters is he has he has uh in the party you know let's call it base plus and I don't know what the plus is there is no plus number. well there you know there <laughs> t- no well, anyway uh so there's the base who will basically be- believe whatever the president tells them and then there's some group beyond that um and what what happens is people say, but there is a problem at the border. Um, And so that's what Republicans are having lawmakers. And there are five in the Senate, by the way, who said they would reopen the government, which if you take those five plus the Democrats, um, you have a majority. It's just that Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, who is completely absent from this uh, debate, um, which just, by the way, we should stop there and think that the Article One branch um, in the Senate is waiting for the president to decide what to do, which, again, going back to the way this uh, whole government thing was supposed to work, um, is, an extraordinary, is an extraordinary perversion of um, the way the co-equal branches are supposed to work. But anyway... Um, uh, the five have broken and the calculation for the other is, it seems to me, is that it's not – is the group of people who think that if they side with the Democrats, which is what this would look like, uh, they're handing a defeat to their president and um, they – in their thinking, they say, but there is a problem at the border. 
Um, so they conflate emergency with merely a problem that needs to be addressed. So, Emily, here's something I just don't understand also, another thing I don't understand. If this is such a big deal for people, if the, the immigration crisis is such a big deal for the president. Now, I understand the president is a, is a rhetorician who doesn't actually care about policy and doesn't really want to get anything done. But let's pretend that he does. It's weird that there isn't there. There's such a great chance for a negotiation here. People seem to feel the stakes are quite high, so I don't see why Democrats aren't saying, "Okay, we're, you can have your wall." You, you, the price of the wall is is DACA, uh, you know, reform of you know H one B program. It's it's all these other aspects of immigration reform that Democrats are keen on and saying yes. Let's let's work to to secure the southern border, and you have an idea of how to do it, and your wall, whatever. We'll we'll give you some funding for that. But here are the pieces that we would like in exchange. And I, it's so odd to me that there isn't an attempt at legislative compromise. That's what legislation is for. That is the whole point of of these these massive bills is to swap things, and people give up stuff and gain stuff. Why isn't that well, even on did. the table in a reasonable way? Yeah, they had tried. I, mean, that I know before, why. I know why. Failed, but. Right. They tried it before. But, I don't know why it's not a part. I mean, there, there and you know, Lamar Alexander and others tried to do one of the ways you you know try and solve these problems is make them bigger, or not them, not make the problem bigger, but make the solution bigger. And Lamar Alexander suggested a version of what you're talking about, which is use this crisis moment to go to go for broke on a comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't seem like the president has any appetite to do what. Some people thought two and a half years ago he had unique opportunity to do, which is a president who calls himself a deal maker and who has no allegiance really to his party, either financially or ideologically, could come in and say, I'll take some of you from the Democratic side and some of you from the Republican side. And now we've just solved an immigration issue that's, you know, bedeviled uh, the parties for a long time. But that that isn't happening. He doesn't seem to be inclined to do that. Right. I mean, I think that it wouldn't work, uh, that Trump wouldn't go for comprehensive immigration reform. And when Pelosi and Schumer thought they had a DACA deal with him, he then backed out, leaving them like holding the bag. So I think that's part of the reason. But you're right, David, that they could still call his bluff. And I think part of the answer is the way in which Trump has polarized the debate so that you have this moment where Pelosi is calling the wall immoral in addition to expensive and a waste of money and impractical, actually immoral. And I think that the Democratic base is demanding that of her and that there would be this sense of, you know, total betrayal if the Democrats were to sign on to a wall. Um, and, and so that's how you have these such polarized stances here, right? Which so seem, it, I mean, I suppose that um, instead of attributing this to Trump, you could also say that it's, the Democrats being just as recalcitrant. But I don't think that's right. I think this insistence on the wall, which was this like campaign device that it's clear the Republican Party doesn't really care about. It's not a priority for most of the Republican lawmakers. It's kind of forced Democrats into drawing this particular line in the sand. And then you can't have the usual kind of wheeling and dealing or even the pretense of it. But I think in the end, it's because Trump just wouldn't do this. Like we have no evidence that he would be the kind of statesman dealmaker that, you know, we just outlined. As a someone who generally sympathizes with the Democrats, I I feel like chaining themselves to the position that this is immoral isn't it doesn't do that much good. I mean, there are a lot of immoral things that are happening. I think the the way we have separated families is immoral. The way we're our asylum policies are fundamentally immoral. 
um, the wall intrinsically does not seem immoral in the same way that other policies the Trump administration is pursuing are immoral. And and I want to return to a point that David Leonhardt made last time, which is that this set of issues, generally border security, immigration issues, is not that is not the the territory the Democrats want to be spending the next two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, fighting over it's a it's a bad territory and what what has ha- what has happened so we're Jan- where are we January what tenth uh, eleventh and 10th. yeah so the, this is the first week of this new Democratic majority in the House and do we hear anything about anything except the border and immigration and the shutdown no I mean there's nothing about the positive Democratic agenda that is that is breaking through there is yeah but the they, shutdown they've lost the, the terms Democrats of the debate think the shutdown is good for them. Well, the shutdown is bad for everybody. The shutdown is right. – it's it's true. Relatively, it is better for Democrats politically maybe than it is for Republicans, but it's bad for the country. Yes, and true. But when and, things are bad for the country, Democrats shouldn't want them. And David sh- – and, and people should focus on your word intrinsically about the wall because, as Emily just pointed out, it has become – you know, it'd be interesting to maybe put a percentage on how much of the wall debate is actually about this literally physical barrier of the wall and and how much more of it is about all of the symbol around it and using the idea of a fence that keeps bad people out as a way to characterize a, a, a group of the population. Um, and um, and how I mean, how it's gotten so much more of a symbol for both for for both sides, obviously, in different ways than the intrinsic question of of where to have a barrier, or why to have a barrier. We should also throw in one other thing. Using eminent domain to take people's property right. to put up a wall is big actually deal. something cons- a lot yeah. of conservatives, I mean, it's A, a big deal in its yeah. own terms, but B, uh, a lot of conservatives uh, would, would be used to be very much against. Can, can I change our subject slightly, which is that I think we're losing sight of actually what Emily pointed out in the beginning is the national emergency, which is there's a government shutdown. And we are on the verge of starting to have breakage in a way that is going to be truly damaging for the country. I think if, if I had a prediction about what is going to end the shutdown, it is the news yesterday that the FDA is not conducting routine food inspections. And so if we have one foodborne illness outbreak that happens in the next few weeks. If we get, we cannot go another, if we go another month, we won't be able to pay out food stamps. They did some chicanery to pay food stamps this, this month. But right. if it goes another month, they won't be able to pay food stamps. They cannot, that is not possible. They cannot continue not paying food stamps. Food stamps have to go out or you're going to have mass crisis in this country. It's clearly can't go more than a month without there being something hugely shaking. And it, it's very likely can't go much more than what it's going because either airport travel becomes intolerable and, and Congress people will not bear that because that's their, their rich, powerful constituents will not like that. Or there's something in the public health or in the environment where the government can't respond in the way it needs to respond and the, the public rises up against that. So that, that to me is the, is the thing we should be focusing on is the damage being done to federal workers, the, mor- the morale hit to the government the destruction of the government's capacity to do good, and then the potential for an actual immediate emergency. Can we just also add into this the like deep, deep injustice of forcing all these federal workers to work without pay? It just makes me so mad on their behalf. If I had to do that, if I was one of those TSA workers, you know, yes, in the end, probably they'll get their back pay. But in the meantime, people have bills, people have expenses. It's just infuriating. This highlights the fact that 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Um, yes. And a lot of the 800,000 here are in those um, are in those in those positions. And it's probably worth mentioning again that um, 
or mentioning maybe for the first time that the re- one of the things that I mean, this is in fulfillment of a promise the president made in his campaign that would be paid for by Mexico. So um, in addition to the many other things going on here, this is a funding fight about something the president was extremely and repeatedly specific about um, well into his well into his presidency. And just in terms of giving a sense of how the way we look at the presidency has shifted, when Barack Obama got into shutdown issues, there were a variety of pieces written and questions asked and, and various people came forward and says, you know, why doesn't he reach out to Republicans more? Why doesn't he schmooze with them more? Why doesn't he have them over and, and break bread? And, and then people would haul out the old LBJ. And then if they were really on their soapbox, they'd talk about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. Those conversations aren't even, as far as I've seen, aren't even happening. In other words, everybody has already kind of baked in the cake uh, the idea that President Trump has never really reached out to Democrats in any meaningful way um, and and don't even expect it. I mean, don't even call on him to do it, but that in lots and lots of previous presidencies – it would have been the everybody would have been saying, why isn't this happening? Why isn't the president who is the leader in a system where we overemphasize the powers of the presidency? Why isn't he doing more to reach out? And we just that's not even really part of the conversation, no. which gives you another sense of how things have shifted. So, Emily, before we leave this topic, uh, one of the, the possible outcomes, in fact, I think maybe the most likely outcome is the president is going to weasel out of it by declaring a national emergency. Give, stating he has now the right to spend money to start building the wall and tie the, it'll get tied up in the courts and then the, the appropriations bills can pass sort of on a separate channel. Everyone will forget about the shutdown piece of it. Is it legal for the president to declare a national emergency in this circumstance? And what does it entitle, what would it theoretically entitle him to do? I mean, I think it is deeply unconstitutional. That said, there is a plausible legal argument, but really we should that should not sit with us for the reasons John started out with. This is not what the framers intended when they were trying to protect us from presidents usurping power. So we have this 1976 law called the National Emergencies Act, and it actually was passed to try to manage and um, contain the ways in which presidents had been allowed to declare emergencies and then spend money. But it was passed at a time when Congress thought that it had more veto power than the Supreme Court later decided that it actually had. And so what we have is this like very ineffective legal patchwork where we have these two laws, and you referred to them earlier, David, that seem to give the president some leeway, if he declares a national emergency, to take money that's been appropriated by Congress for some military or um, – Yes, for some military spending and then use it for a different kind of military spending. So you have those laws. And then the argument the Trump administration would make is like we're reappropriating um, funds that Congress already gave the Defense Department for this other purpose, which the president declares is necessary because of this national emergency. Then the problem is that the president, any president, can make anything into a national emergency. There is just no limit on what that means. And so then you would be asking the courts to step in and say, hey, wait a second. There is no emergency here. We can't accept this completely pretextual bullshit explanation for why there is an emergency. 
Um, and yet then you return to this like statutory hole we have. Well, but if the National Emergencies Act says that an emergency is whatever the president says it is, then like who can stop Trump from making this declaration, even if it has zero evidence behind it? That just cannot be the right answer. Right. Like it constitutionally speaking allows the president so much leeway to defy the will of Congress that it just seems like a violation of the separation of powers. It particularly seems wrong constitutionally because of the famous steel seizure cases. This is, um, you know, Truman famously during the Korean War tried to make steel mills continue to produce. He said that there was an emergency because of the Korean War. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, wait a second. If Congress, there are various like levels of presidential power. But if Congress decides not to um, allow the president, not to authorize certain um, presidential conduct, then the president is at the nadir of his power. And he really can't just like go ahead and do this anyway. And in this situation, that's what we've got, right? We've got Congress refusing to appropriate the money for the wall. And so the notion that Trump can get around that by declaring a bogus national emergency when there is none, like that just cannot be the right answer. And I feel like because this could be the way out of the shutdown impasse, people are being kind of blasé about what this will mean for rule of law and presidential power if we just like allow this to happen. And then it turns into this court fight, which, you know, like I said, there's sort of this plausible statutory argument. And so we'll all march along taking that seriously. But really, this is like really bad stuff. Do you, do you think it gets to the Supreme Court? And if you if it got to the Supreme Court, do you have any sense of how it would be handicapped? Yeah, it absolutely gets to the Supreme Court. I mean, I think the big question is whether a district court issues a stay and doesn't allow the wall building to go forward. And so we have a kind of, you know, in the meantime, a halt on the wall while it all gets litigated. Yes, well, it will go to the Supreme Court. I mean, when you look at the travel ban case, it doesn't uh, look very good for the challengers of Trump's actions because the Supreme Court was willing to accept, a, you know, made up explanation in that case. Now, arguably, that was a whole different context because in the field of immigration, the president's power is at its zenith. He's just got a lot of power over our borders. And and I know this is also a border issue, but because it's tied up in this question of Congress not appropriating funds for a particular means of addressing immigration, I think it should be different. But I mean, I don't especially want to bet on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, it just seems like it's so clearly the wrong answer under the Constitution. Right. Um, you got to hope that they would come to that conclusion. A lot of hands. Um, Dapith listeners are Googling Nader and Zenith right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, which would be a good thing to name your two dogs. Um, Emily or David, too. Could the president do the emergency powers, go have the first court slap back or, or stay on the building of the wall, but use but basically say, okay, I'll sign whatever stopgap spending measure you and Congress need to do because the courts are going to uh, validate me ultimately anyway. I mean, in other words, this yes. is a way to get out of this. Yes, that's, so he, yeah, that's what he's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, did I miss that? that, that or, but, but I was just going back to the funding of the government part, not the constitutional Yeah, but I think Emily's part. point is that, that it creates a terrible precedent. That, so well, that, of course. That's, that's, of course it does. Yeah. The, yeah. The it gets us past this immediate road bump well, but at the cost of like a, a serious. Well, if he sh- if he gets shot down, then it's not a, then the cost is not there. Then there's no cost. 
Yes, if he got shot down by the courts in a clear and emphatic way, then that would be a good limitation. I just don't have complete faith that will happen or happen quickly. And I worry about the alternative. Also, this is yet one more instance in which we discover that these hugely important foundations of the American system are based on norms, not law. And I guess we could thank Trump for exposing that, but only if we're going to fix them later. And what I worry about is that by pushing these boundaries, Trump is, as you were saying, David, earlier, just creating a terrible precedent, even if he doesn't get away with it. Hey, Slate Plus members and non-Slate Plus members. Slate Plus members, you, of course, get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And your bonus segment today, we're excited for it. Although we're not quite sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be about favor-mongering. We have the phrase. We just don't know the outlines, the contours of the discussion. But it will be amazing because those are always the best ones are the ones where we know there's something we want to talk about, but we don't know why. So go to Slate.com slash Plus to become a member today and get such vague topics as favor-mongering and other things discussed by us in bonus segments. And also great bonus segments on other Slate podcasts as well as other it would bonus be content. A, it would be a huge favor if you did that. <laughs> this episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, your weekly Mueller news diet. Paul Manafort accidentally reveals, or his lawyers accidentally reveal, that he passed polling data on to a Russian associate of his, Konstantin Kalimnik, who was then in turn going to pass it on to an oligarch, Oleg Deraspaska, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, um, with the, no certainty about where that was ending up, that this private polling data, who knows what it was going, where it was going, why it was going there, what Manafort was doing, passing it along. Also, the Russian lawyer in the Trump Tower meeting was indicted on charges totally separate from her involvement in the Trump Tower meeting. Also, Rod Rosenstein is leaving the Department of Justice as soon as Bill Barr is confirmed as attorney general. Also, we learned that Bill Barr and Robert Mueller are good friends for what that's worth. Anything else? Uh, any other high headlines that I missed? I feel like there's one other that I missed, but we we won't. We'll we'll leave I it. I thought that there. was a good summary, Emily. What is important about what was revealed in that Manafort filing, and were his lawyers just total morons for revealing, or is that were we just making too big a deal about the fact that they accidentally appeal appear to have revealed some stuff? I mean, I think it's a big deal that they messed up how to redact a document and left it searchable. Um, 
even though they thought they had blacked out copy. That is not competent lawyering. Um, I definitely would have done that. Totally. I definitely felt the same, the same way. I was like, oh, my God, I bet I have done that. Good thing I've never had to redact anything I've posted publicly. Anyway, why is this a big deal? Well, it's evidence of the Trump campaign giving campaign-related information to someone who was both involved in, you know, Ukrainian politics in a dicey way and also is has ties to Russian intelligence, like seems to clearly be someone who is keeping Putin's regime informed. And it's all campaign related. Like, why was Manafort turning this data over? What what why did um Kalimnik want it? What did the Russians want with it? What were they doing with it? I mean, those are the unanswered questions. It could turn out that this was just Manafort covering coveting favor. Um, he obviously was trying to get in. He was trying to settle his debts with Deripaska. And so maybe it was just simply about that, had nothing to do with Trump or the campaign. And yet one still wonders, like, what did the Russians want with this? What did Deripaska want? Um, Could it be tied to the Russians interfering with the election, which we know happened subsequently? It's the first evidence of Trump campaign-related information passing through these um, suspicious channels. And the the question, so this was not just like Quinnipiac's latest poll. It was supposedly polling, uh, private polling that was within the Trump campaign. So, you know, presumably the good stuff, right? Um, yes. The question is whether, and or the question for me anyway, is whether this is uh, Manafort, who's got bills to pay and is heavily indebted to um, the Russian oligarch uh, Oleg Deripaska, um, and that this was him trying to get right, essentially using his chairmanship and the promise of helping have inside uh, skinny into the Trump campaign. And you could imagine the polling being used to say, no, no, he's a serious candidate. He might get elected. Don't think don't follow all the actual public pundits and public polling that says Hillary Clinton's going to win. Here's the private polling that says he's going to win, and therefore you need a man on the inside. Therefore, uh, you know, forgive yeah. me my debts. Um, yes. Was that Manafort nice. trying to keep himself in uh, ostrich uh, skin coats and uh, with fur collars, or was it part of uh, collusion with, for the purposes of, of getting elected? Um, and by the way, two things could have been going on at the same time. Right. Right. Not either or. That's very well put, John. There's the data, marketing people were abuzz on Twitter because marketing people are obsessed with data and polling data and that that is the raw material. That is the material that all campaigns are built on, but all businesses are built on these days is, is data. So if it's in fact a rich data set, it does give a huge inside advantage to if, if the Russians are going to use that uh, to actually target or to do, do something active with. So it could be not just proof of Trump's validity, but also, in fact, useful information yeah. that would allow uh, 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 the Internet Research Agency in, in St. Petersburg to commit um, acts of violence against American democracy as well. So, so as you say, it can be both of those things. There's nothing, Emily, in here that we've heard, however, that that draws in the president. There's no implication that just because Manafort, who is clearly one of the worst people you will ever encounter if you're if you happen to be wandering around Washington, that Manafort is a bad actor. But there's not an implication that Manafort and the president are acting in concert together here, is there? 
that we know of. No, not so far. I mean, I think there's nothing that rules that out, but there is no evidence in this particular um, revelation that that was going on. It just depends how this puzzle piece fits into the larger picture, right? I mean, we keep looking at each piece of the puzzle separately as it is revealed to us. Um, and the real question is how Mueller's team is putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And until we have the answer to that, it's just really hard to judge, um, or at least until we get another breadcrumb that shows a trail to Trump. You know, if you're imagining the Trump campaign wanting to help the Russians, then I think it gets harder to keep this um, away from Trump. But we just don't really know that yet. I will say, though, you know, in the sort of obsession with collusion, this is potentially evidence um, of information going back toward the Russians, right? Like until now, it's been all about the Russians approaching the Trump campaign. This is like the Trump campaign or someone on the Trump campaign some, sending something something back to the Russians. And, you know, since collusion isn't um, a crime in itself, it's this like shorthand we've been using. If you want to talk about conspiracy, which is a crime, yeah. like this would be good evidence for building a case of conspiracy. Doesn't this also ha- give us some insight into how much Mueller had, which more insight than we've already had, and we've had quite a lot about how how much he really knows about stuff. I mean, in other words, um, now, if this came from Gates, he's flipped Gates. So Gates is now working with the special counsel. So, you know, that seems – but it's it, it seems the, every time we learn a detail like this, we get further proof that um, that Mueller – really has a very thorough understanding of what Manafort was doing. Um, he keeps catching him lying. Um, and uh, and if you extrapolate from that, um, it means there's lots more iceberg uh, beneath the tip that we're seeing. Emily, there was also this story this week that the president has staffed up on lawyers every I – I don't even know where they keep finding it. Just as a reminder how many lawyers there must be in Washington. But – one of the things he's staffing up on lawyers to do is to try to prevent, sounds like, to try to prevent Mueller from sharing lots of his information with Congress, the public, mostly the public, I suppose, saying that it's covered by executive privilege and that these are conversations that the president was having with aides that shouldn't, that, you know, cannot be revealed uh, publicly. What's your sense about um, how that's going to how that's going to be resolved. Well, this is the next frontier now the Democrats have taken over the House because they have subpoena power and they are going to ask for all kinds of information. And then um, the White House is going to refuse to turn a lot of it over and they're going to cite executive privilege and it's going to turn into a big prolonged legal battle, right? I mean, Congress can declare certain officials in contempt of Congress. Congress you know, back in the day, uh, a couple of times, I think, actually jailed people for contempt of Congress. But we haven't done that in a very long time. What is more standard is that you have a fight over the boundaries of congressional subpoena power versus executive privilege that gets tied up in the courts. I think the Trump administration will be like perfectly happy to have that fight. Uh, They'll have that fight over Trump's tax returns. They'll have that fight over a lot of information they don't want to turn over. And it it's going to take a small army of lawyers to litigate it. But, you know, the notion that the Democrats are going to be able to, like, march in and all these mysteries are suddenly going to be revealed because all these documents are going to be instantly public, like, that is not going to be the case. 
The other news uh, that I noted this week, Emily, was that that Rod Rosenstein was going to be leaving once the new attorney general takes office, which kind of makes sense. Doesn't seem shocking. Rosenstein has been, I think p- people have seen him as the, the great shield and protector. People on the left have seen him as the shield and protector of the Mueller investigation. Do you think there should be grave concern about his departure? Do you think that's that's uh, doesn't matter at this point that Mueller clearly is going to be able to wrap up his investigation in the way he wants to? I would really like to hear William Barr, when he has his confirmation hearings next week, swear under oath that he will not interfere with the Mueller investigation. Um, You know, it is somewhat reassuring that Rosenstein has some faith in him. But, you know, Barr wrote that apoplectic, like, I mean, almost kind of bizarre memo uh, criticizing the Mueller investigation. What Rosenstein has said about that is, well, he wrote that before he knew the facts, suggesting that once he knows the facts, he'll change his position. That seems perfectly plausible. And I don't see a real reason why Bill Barr would want to go down in history as um, the person who um, scotched the Mueller investigation. But he does have this deeply held belief in the unitary theory of the executive, which is basically that the president, you know, practically can't commit a crime. I'm exaggerating, but like barely. I mean, that so many things come under the authority of the president that if he wants to fire Jim Comey or, you know, pardon Flynn, he can do all these things. Um, And so because Barr is so clearly on the record about that in a way that seems extreme, it seems vital for Congress to ask these questions and get assurances. Congress can't force Rosenstein to stay in his job. But I think the Justice Department has been surprisingly resilient in the face of these attacks and incursions on the rule of law, the, you know, Trump's like beating his chest and making the presidency more powerful than it should be. And anything that threatens that is something that we should be on the lookout for. Well, the unitary theory of the executive, meaning the president, is the interpretation of the Constitution says the president has total authority over the executive branch, which is why those firings would be okay. Whereas the Constitution is is specific about what circumscribes Congress. And so uh, people who interpret it that way – but I don't see how that – that would that would mean he might be in a position to say, as you pointed out, anything the president did with respect to to Flynn or Comey is fine, regardless of his motives. But if that contradicts what Mueller says, then then that's a debate for the you know for Congress to have. Lindsey Graham has said the threshold question for Sessions' replacement is whether the new attorney general will allow this. He said this before Barr was in the mix, but will allow Mueller to finish his work. Uh, unimpeded. And Graham has put those questions to Barr again in in his um, tour around the Senate and said that Barr said he wasn't going to do anything to tell Mueller what to do or how to do it. But then the question is, how does he handle the whatever Mueller produces? Um, and does he help hide it? Um, and and I don't know how all that how that all that would play out or how because he will hand the report to Barr. Right. And then Barr has to do whatever with it, whatever. Yeah, presumably. And that's why we want Barr answering all these questions in front of the Senate publicly and under oath, right? right? So that we have a better sense of. Yeah. Unless, of course, all of this turns out to be moot because Pete Williams of NBC is reporting that Rosenstein has promised to stay um, after Barr is confirmed until Mueller submits his final report. All right. Anything more on this topic before we go? 
One little thing we should mention, which is uh, a mystery, which is that the Supreme Court did decided not to step in in a dispute between Mueller uh, and some foreign owned company that has been trying to resist his efforts uh, to look into their activities. Um, And the Supreme Court uh, didn't side with the foreign owned government, uh, foreign owned company. So we don't know what that's about. But it's it's uh, it's caused a lot of skullduggery. And at one point, didn't even they, they shut down the floor on which the legal one of the intermediate legal proceedings was taking place. So nobody from the press could get on it. And um, it's all very uh, secret. Right. And the presiding judge has found that this company is in contempt of obeying a subpoena and has wanted to impose a fee of fifty thousand dollars a day until the company complied. And the Supreme Court refused to step in and save the company from paying that money. So presumably the clock is ticking, the money is flowing, and that should give the company a reason to comply with the subpoena. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. AOC. BFD. The obsession with a new member of Congress from Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has reached extraordinary levels. The Democratic Socialist, the youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives, has appeared on 60 Minutes. She has become the number one target of conservatives furious about the move to the left of the Democrats in the House and the move to the left of Democrats generally. They are fixated on proving that that Ocasio-Cortez is not authentic, that she doesn't come from a disadvantaged background. They are upset that her nickname was Sandy in high school. They say that she's shallow because she liked to dance while she was in college. They say that she's got crazy policy ideas, that she has no grasp of facts and lies like Trump. They have circulated fake nude photos of her, for goodness sake. At the same time, on the left, there's a huge excitement about what Ocasio-Cortez is bringing, a, a kind of brilliance in media that is that's quite remarkable. Her grasp and gift in media is is extraordinary. She has successfully, I think, brought up policy proposals that have never been talked about uh, in serious circles or haven't been talked about in serious circles on the left for decades because she just brings a kind of vitality and credibility to them. I also learned that she won the second prize in the Intel Science Competition in high school. Did you guys know that? And there's, in fact, an asteroid named after her because she was second prize in the Intel Science Competition. No way. That's so awesome. I love that. Yeah. So why, Emily, is there such obsession with Ocasio-Cortez on left and right? Well, she is the future, right? And so you either love it or you fear it. She, You're right. I think what is this sort of brilliance in media and social media about? It's that she's fearless, or at least that's how she appears. So like this video of her dancing in college comes out. Conservatives put it out there supposedly to embarrass her. Lots of people love the exuberance and um, just, like, sheer fun of this video. And then she makes this other little snippet video of herself, like, dancing a tiny bit in her congressional office with this, like, great smile on her face. I mean, look, I'm totally charmed by her. But if you are someone who thinks, like, 
the left should have its articulate, smart, exciting champion, and that it's good to expand the window of the kind of policy proposals we talk about in terms of, you know, taxes and also the idea of this Green New Deal, then you welcome her presence. And then also the fact that she's this uh, Latino woman from this incredibly diverse district is, like, exciting. If you're threatened by everything that represents and, you know, you think the left is better off um, muzzled, then she's going to seem like an enormous threat. I think it's important to point out that these attacks on her authenticity have not seemed to have very much or if any factual basis to them whatsoever, right? So it just seems like the right keeps giving her a way to own them and dunk on them by attacking her for things that are just like ridiculous. Part of what's happening, though, is people are I mean, what does it mean for conservatives to have like been attacking her for that dancing video? There was also some clever. It wasn't exactly umbrage taking, but maybe it was like a lot of support her supporters and people who who like her and would like to use uh, the idea of making fun of her for dancing as a way to paint the all the entire right right yeah you know successfully use that so but uh you know that's whatever that's politics um first of all she's a giant slayer in that she is in washington um to begin with and so that's what makes her interesting and your point about the overton window which is to say the the what is um permissible to talk about now is is really interesting in this sense to me which is like the first place that's going to show up is in is in democratic primaries so normally the the what's what is in the marketplace of ideas in democratic primaries is determined by what the candidates themselves talk about and so you know if herman cain talks about his 999 plan suddenly everybody's over talking about 999 but what if you have a person setting the terms of debate who is um a social media star who has this who captures all of this attention who's not even in the running that to me, if you're just interested in ideas bouncing around and if you're interested in contests in which people have to do more um, than just kind of say the same old traditional things, then she's she's great for basically just throwing a cat amongst the pigeons. And those two, the two particular ideas that she's been most associated with, the Green New Deal and the high marginal tax rate to help fund it. So she's talked about a 70 percent marginal tax rate on incomes above $10 million a year which right now that number is 37, 34, something much, much, much lower, are great ideas. (laughs) They're great, exciting ideas. And on the marginal tax rate question, most Americans, when they understand what it is, are huge supporters of it. People who are making that much income, they should be taxed at a high level on that marginal income. That's one of the problems we've had is this enormous growth in wealth disparity because rich people – Rich people, our tax system is progressive, but it's not progressive enough. And it really isn't that progressive when you start to talk about people who are earning huge amounts of money. Now, there, now, of course, there are reasons why a 70% marginal tax rate wouldn't necessarily address the wealth disparity. And there are lots of people who have lots of income that isn't earned income that would be taxed and blah, blah, blah. But it's a darn good opener as far as I'm concerned anyway. If you're in favor of the idea of the battle of ideas, the reason it feels like it's a good opener is because it literally does open the window to a conversation about wealth disparity and income inequality and the roots of it. And uh, and as soon as you talk about 70%, you'll immediately get into a conversation about lobbyists and who has the power to influence the way that tax laws are written. Because you can be certain that if anybody were ever to 
actually get a 70 percent marginal tax rate through, you would have enough loopholes in tax legislation to allow the people who fund campaigns um, and who keep a lot of the people in power in power, they would certainly find a way to create the kind of loopholes that were in existence when marginal tax rates were at that level in previous periods in American history. So, um, but that's great to have debates and discussions about all of that from the sterile um, kinds of conversations we've had before. Right. So, the Adam Serwer had an interesting column where he talked about the attacks on Ocasio-Cortez's authenticity and associates it with the attacks that were also made on Barack Obama's authenticity, the attempts to paint him as non-American. And Serwer makes an argument essentially that when minority politicians, minority powerful, minority figures start to move into positions of power and expect to be treated and, and be given the, the respect and the authority that they have won, uh, that there's a often a backlash, a white backlash against it, with the notion that these are people who are getting unearned benefits and they don't deserve it and they're, they're, they are, in fact, uh, stealing something from, from white people who, have, who, who aren't getting these special favors that these minority people are getting. Um, what, do you, why do you think Ocasio-Cortez in particular has triggered that? Or has she? Maybe maybe just people see it more visibly because she's been good at parrying it. And actually, there hasn't been that much. I don't know. I think there is that because she is so charismatic and so she's exciting and for that reason threatening to um, the kinds of people on the right you were just talking about in a way that Barack Obama was too. And she has the potential to be this real crossover figure and to make less threatened white people feel like a person of color can, you know, rise to the very top. I mean, look, this is all sort of premature. This person isn't even 30 yet. Um, Who knows what will happen to her? But she looks like the kind of potentially transformative figure in American politics who could transcend these racial divides. And so then there's an even greater incentive to try to make her seem kind of other in this way that I think some white conservatives tend to do with people of color all the time. And I mean, the explanation for it, unfortunately, I think lies in the way in which the Republican Party and um, to some degree, American conservatism is white. Like we are heading into this world, I think already 90 percent of Republicans are white. And so this I mean, I think it's like one of the most troubling uh, things happening in America today, and it explains so much polarization that if you have a political party that isn't even trying to reach out to people of color and the kind of, you know, recognizing the diversifying of America and celebrating that, then you have this potential for exactly the kind of taking down and demonizing that you're talking about where it becomes racial instead of just being about things like policy differences, right? I mean, you can, if you're on the right, you can attack Ocasio-Cortez for the Green New Deal, or you can start talking about like her nickname in high school. Now, which of these things really matters? Where should people really be having issues with her? Well, and and it's much more effective to do, to do the second if you, um, uh, if you believe the theory of politics that people vote their their sort of their guts more than their brain, because the kind of attacks that you've just described, Emily, they one undermine the person themselves by making them seem like a phony, 
but then it is also an echo of or in con- in concert with an existing view of the world which argues that people of color get undeserved advantages at the expense of the white working class, the sort of so-called free phones, um, or not so-called, but I mean it's like the free phones version of a, of a human, which is like – and that that resonates in a way that's played on in lots of – in lots of other uh, different ways. Right. And then the problem, of course, is that you're preventing class solidarity, right? Like the Green New Deal, if it occurred, would bring jobs to lots of dispossessed white people across the country. It could fix these problems we've had um, with factories closing down and deindustrialization, put people back to work in the very kind of, you know, infrastructure jobs that we need in those places that could go to a lot of white men in particular who, you know, seem to be flailing and feeling like they're on the decline. So if you can instead just like de-authenticate the people of color who are championing these ideas, then, you know, you prevent that kind of uh, that kind of unifying, which like most Americans do actually agree on and most Americans would stand to benefit from. How do we talk about the fact that she's extraordinarily attractive. And this is, a, I think, a, it's a Beto thing, too. That mm-hmm. One of the, the reasons why he was he did so well is that he was he's just a really, really appealing, physically appealing. She's extraordinarily Don't tell Barack Obama out of this conversation. And Barack Obama, yeah, and Barack <laughs> Obama, for sure. And Sarah pa- and the Sarah Palin piece of it. Like, is it, or is that just, we just need to avoid it, stay out of it, it's off limits. So why would you, uh, why is it off limits? Well, I, I don't know if there's a good productive way no, to talk No, no, what it. is the best argument for why it's off limits? I mean, I know what the best argument is, but I'm... Well, say it. I don't know. Don't, don't pose a rhetorical question that I can't answer. Well, because, well, because, poli- because, because it objectifies because her? This, it objectifies her, right. It makes... It's, this should be about oh, ideas that. and not oh, about okay. the person from... Sorry. Which. The problem is... The problem is presidential <laughs> David campaigns and politics... David about whether he wants to see <laughs> yeah. her or not, and he'd prefer not oh to have my to God. go down that road. Jesus, so, Emily. That's not what he was saying. That's so never, gross. He would never have that idea. No men in America are thinking about that right now. And so the problem is that once you even Jesus. open the door for a, a dispassionate – The problem is once you shot. open the door for even a dispassionate conversation about this, you end up falling well down in, as we are currently doing. But the, <laughs> the reason it's inter- an interesting question, of course, David, is because we know that the way people make their decisions about things, particularly in a campaign context and particularly in a presidential campaign context, is not based on the dispassionate, cool uh, application of reason to the great problems of the day. All right, last I, question about Can I just add one other thing though about her? Go ahead. Yes. Well, no, I mean that's that's the tension in the in the in in his in his question. Isn't it? I mean, or or do you think that people really do vote based simply on the quality of the ideas and it has nothing to do with the person who communicates them? Well, of course I don't think that because that would Well, be that's what I'm saying. That's ridiculous. the tension in the question. Yes, the tension, no, that's I the mean, tension in the question. I was just laughing because I I think it's impossible to ignore this. And because a lot of the attacks on her, the belittling of her is related to her sexuality, it's on the table for that reason. Um, And is, of course, we can talk about it. What I appreciate about her tremendously is how comfortable she seems in her own body. I think it is unusual to see someone on the public political stage who just seems to fully own her physical presence. And I really welcome the message that that sends to girls and young women. And of course, it could be tied to her, the fact that she's hugely attractive, but it also just like has to do with I don't know. It seems like a core part of her persona that we can celebrate, like, 
separately from the fact that she is extraordinarily beautiful. Right, which you might, which you might just label. I mean, I think that you make an excellent point, and particularly on the modeling question. But which you would, you, you might label in another context just sheer authenticity, which is to say, or whatever we call authenticity in the context of politics, which is the seeming appearance of a person being completely comfortable with who they are, what they're saying, and what they believe, and not being someone who is totally prepackaged. Yes, I should exactly. add one final note. To one final note to this conversation, I think, which is a part of it, and I don't know where it fits, but I mean, it is not crazy for people to react negatively to a newcomer in political life when they are young and saying brash things. When Tom Dewey decided to run when he was quite a youngster, um, they joked that instead of throwing his, throwing his hat into the presidential ring, he threw his diaper into the ring. It was an effort to belittle him and make his youth uh, a liability and not a, a benefit, and he didn't, didn't go anywhere in 1956 anyway. But Whoopi Goldberg was critical of, of Ocasio-Cortez because she argued that her criticism of the Democratic Party didn't give the existing Democrats who've been fighting for the same values any credit for all the work they're done. And she finished her remarks by saying, you just got there and I know you've got lots of good ideas, but I would encourage you to sit still for a minute and learn the job. So Whoopi Goldberg is not exactly a raging conservative. And so I think that reaction is coming uh, towards her as well. I think that's such a misguided reaction. The job these days is actually the job of a House member these days is not to legislate. There is no legislation that passes the House. It's not a serious legislative chamber. The job is to be a kind of public figure around ideas and to create a sort of drama and buzz and a national identity. That's what we've – the evidence of the last 25 years is that. And she has uh, – she shouldn't sit still and, and wait. She should teach other people in the Democratic caucus, here's how you use Instagram. Here, here are ways to – Put ideas out in the public. She has a, a gift and a skill and an ability to reach an audience that 99 out of, you know, 100 new members or any members of Congress do, do not have. And that's her job. Is her job is, is not to wait. It's to push. Right. I mean, another thing about her that I find compelling is that she doesn't seem to limit herself to talking points when she's giving interviews. She seems to just talk. And like when she's in, on Instagram <laughs> cooking some, you know, recipe involving beans from her grandmother. It's an extension of that. And to the degree that that's spilling over more broadly into politics, to me, that just is so welcome. I'm so tired of the retreat into talking points. It's so boring. I was watching this like one minute video the other night of a newly elected um, state representative in Connecticut whose name is Ann Hughes. And she just had this camera on her as she was entering the um, Connecticut state capitol. I don't know if she was going for there for the first time or what, but it was like kind of, you know, clumsily shot. She had some bag of stuff from her local constituent. She was just like excited to be there. And it was just sort of charming in a kind of wacky way. And I feel like the more we have that in American politics, like good, I'm all for that. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're making your Cortez cocktails, Emily. What are you going to be chattering well, about Well, I'm week? sorry because this is sort of a sober topic, but I read an amazing piece this week by um, 
ironically, for cocktails. <laughs> I read an amazing piece this week by Tressie McMillan Cottom, who is an American writer. She's also a sociologist um, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And she wrote a piece in Time about her own pregnancy, and, um, and it was a lost pregnancy. She um, had a stillbirth. And what she was really writing about was the way she was viewed as a black woman um, and the problem of competence in healthcare, where she was reporting symptoms that should have been um, taken in by her doctor as truly alarming and instead were kind of brushed off or ignored. And this is a larger problem we're having right now where um, maternal mortality rates are higher for black women in America in a way that is about race as well as class and is deeply troubling. And um, was just such a powerful use of one's own story to to make a point with other evidence behind it and to you know really like interrogate this problem of how we see different people when they present as patients. So I really recommend it, and in particular, her thinking about how, despite the fact that she's well-educated, ed- that, you know, she speaks in a way you would expect of an educated person, she still felt like she was viewed as an incompetent purveyor of her own symptoms in a way that led to this tragic outcome. Uh, it, it really made me think. Yeah, it was such a hard piece to read. Yeah. Mm. J.D., what is your Cortez? <laughs> Um, well, mine is a one of, you know, I feel like I could do every cocktail chatter about something I find on brain pickings, but, um, this one in particular I liked, I can't remember why I, what wandered me there into this, uh, thicket, but anyway, it's, um, when Walt Whitman first self-published Leaves of Grass, uh, Leaves of Grass, I should say, um, not Leaves of Graphs, that was another book, um, the, um, it was basically panned. Um, it didn't sell well, and it was it was not warmly received. And Leaves of Grass had been inspired by an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson, an essay called The Poet. And so Whitman, while he's down in the dumps, gets a letter from Emerson who says uh, that Leaves of Grass is amazing. He starts his letter by saying, I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift of Leaves of Grass. So I would encourage everybody to read this letter from Emerson, which is great, because it contains just great sentences like um, the idea that there is too much lymph in the temperament that is making our Western wits fat and mean. So go read it, and it's wonderful, but more important is the um, sentiment behind it, which is the idea that people who create and people who uh, are, you know, are sometimes in need of bucking up uh, and that a letter like this can uh, be a ray of sunshine in an otherwise very dark moment, which is exactly what it was for Whitman. When I toured the National Archives, I think I'm correct in saying this. I had a behind-the-scenes tour of the National Archives a few years ago, which was magnificent. And one of the things I saw there was a letter of recommendation that Emerson wrote for Whitman for Whitman to get a job at uh, whatever government agency he was going to work as a at nurse because he was a nurse during this yeah maybe that's what it was i love the idea of that <laughs> emerson is writing letters of recommendation for for uh, whitman uh my chatter just a couple one first a log rolling one which is that my dear company atlas obscura and actually emily's dear company the new york times have just teamed up on a great partnership and i invite you to check it out which is that we are together going to do uh 
one weekend in London and one weekend in Los Angeles, and each weekend is going to be a, it's going to you're going to spend the whole weekend learning about the history of that city and the future of that city around science. We call them science weekends. So in London, there'll be a kind of surgery exhibition at the old operating theater, and then a a dinner with the worshipful society of apothecaries. And in Los Angeles, there'll be uh, sky photography and a, a behind-the-scenes access to the Dino Lab at the Natural History Museum, and it's a and there'll be Times journalists as educators, and it's going to be a, you know fantastic combination of Atlas Obscura's Hidden Wonders and the Times' expertise. And I really would love for you to come join us on one of these trips, one in L.A. in that May. And so great. Yeah, it's going to they're going to be great. They're really going to be great. L.A. is in May, and uh, the London one is in September. So. Check them out on atlasobscura.com slash trips or just email me at david at atlasobscura.com and I can point them to you. The other um, chatter I just want to point out is an excellent, interesting column in the also in the Times, which we almost did as a topic about income sharing agreements, which is this new idea in education. Uh, there are several schools that are being set up. In this case, it's a school called Lambda School where you do not pay tuition. And you go to this this higher it's higher education, and you go to this um, program. And when you come out, you pay a percentage of your income. If your income is over a certain amount, you pay a percentage of your income to the school, and that's your effective tuition payment. So if you go out, you get a job that pays you seventy thousand dollars a year. You you pay seventeen percent of your salary back to the school, and that funds it. And and for certain people. If you get a great job, you'll end up paying a lot more probably than you would have paid in tuition. And if you get a mediocre job, you won't end up paying any tuition. But it incentivizes the school to train you in skills that are going to make you a valuable employee in certain areas. So it's, they're focusing on things like data science and coding. And it's both an interesting – it's a kind of apprenticeship, more apprenticeship-y model. It's, it's a challenge to the basic idea of the liberal arts education, which has been so um, – dominant in in higher education and it's an attack on public and private universities in some ways because these are different entities that are going to be offering these more practical programs but i think it's uh it's really worth looking at and i bet it gets a lot of traction and i know that we when i look at people i'm employing for coding jobs there are a lot of people who've come out of code academies which function often function the same way so check out this piece in the times about income sharing agreements. And of course, we have a listener chatter. You should tweet your listener chatter to us at, at Slate Gabfest or share it on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gabfest. This week, uh, Mike Stannis and Nicole Garten both sent us the same piece. Mike's comment on Twitter was, hey, at Slate Gabfest, my cocktail chatter this week is a long piece about millennial burnout. It's incredibly refreshing to read something about my own generation which, is, which actually gets close to how it feels to be part of it. Um, and it's a piece in BuzzFeed called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It was all over my, my, my Twitter this week. And a lot of us Gen Xers were like, yeah, Crimea River, millennials, tired of hearing you guys complain. But it, it gets to the point about what, what is so exhausting about young professional life and how much running it feels just to stay in the same place, not to get anywhere. So it's, uh, I recommend that piece that Mike Stannis and Nicole Garten point us to. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. You should follow us on Twitter at, at Slate Gab Fest and tweet chatter at us. 
For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening and come to our live show in D.C. where we will be huzzahing and praising and and, uh, talking about Emily's book on March 27th at the Lincoln Theater, slate.com slash live for tickets to that. We will talk to you next week. Ever listen to podcasts with your kids? It's a great way to keep them entertained and engage their minds without relying on screens. I want to tell you about a new kids history podcast hosted by me, Joy Dolo. It's called Forever Ago, and I teamed up with the producers of the award-winning kids podcast, Brains On, to make it. Forever Ago dives into the amazing backstories of everyday stuff, like emojis, video games, and skateboards. We use games, skits, and kid co-hosts to keep the whole family engaged, while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Along the way, we'll hear some incredible stories, like how a curious teenager revolutionized skateboarding. Gnarly. How alarm clocks used to just be people. Rise and shine. And how the poop emoji almost didn't happen. You can find Forever Ago on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.